Well, it's great to see so many new faces even on a holiday weekend. Thank you so much for joining with us um, here at Vintage. We're in the middle of a series thinking about what the church is for. And I hope over the last few weeks you've been inspired, you've been encouraged, you've been blessed by the different topics. But today what I want to do is to zero in on maybe the single most important reason that any church exists in the world. And it is this, is to make Jesus known. To make Jesus known. Here at Vintage, we have this mission statement. To see God's kingdom come to our communities through making disciples who live as whole life followers of Jesus. That maybe before we can even go out into the world to be good news, that before we can pray in his name, before we can be an effective community, his bride, that actually we have to be all about Jesus. All about Jesus. But who is Jesus? (laughs) Who is Jesus? Now, you might think that's a pretty obvious question in a church. You might think, Pastor, you better know the answer to this question. Otherwise, we've we've got some problems. But I I feel like we live in a moment in history when the idea of who Jesus is is deeply contested. These are just some responses which were taken in interview in our Alpha series. Who is Jesus? He's a character in the Bible. (laughs) He has something to do do with God. Long hair, wears a white robe. I don't know, uh, actually. I, I, I don't know how to answer that. Uh, I've never personally met him, but I know a lot of people have. He was a prophet, one of them, one of the many. A nice guy from the Middle East. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. An everyday guy. A man of conviction. He knows what it feels like to be human, to be rejected. The friend of, of those that are often mocked. I don't know. A man Yeah. who, who lived he at one point. Nobody knows who Jesus is, let me tell you. 33-year-old carpenter from the Middle East. That's like a dude that like in the Bible says he died for us. Paved a way for us to, to live differently. He was somebody, he did live, right? But who he was to you is different. I think Jesus is just a symbol, it has symbolism. Jesus is my savior. But he could also really be a good friend. He's relatable to me. He's my everyday chance at life, the creator of all. That's what I believe is. is the reason why we're all here. Interesting, right? Interesting views. But maybe despite all of the competing ideas of who Jesus is, it's really interesting that a survey found recently that 52% of Gen Z Americans are fascinated about Jesus, that they want to find out more about him. Even amongst all the cultural narratives and even though society is getting more secular, people are hungry to know Jesus. That 52% said that Jesus brings deep joy and satisfaction, that he speaks in a way that is relevant to life today. And isn't it interesting if you've been watching the news over the last couple of weeks, like with the Asbury Seminary like revival going on, young people are pouring into that place to meet with Jesus. But isn't it extraordinary though that we live in 2023 and that our lives here in like the West are still centered around a Jewish carpenter who lived in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. How can that possibly be? Why does that work? Well, we better get into it. We better find out who this Jesus is and why it matters in the church. And so I don't think if there's any other better way to do it than to look at what Jesus said about himself. People say lots of things about Jesus But what did Jesus say? And so we're going to have our reading, and Jerry's going to bring our reading. It's in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. If you've got your Bible, that would be great. If not, it'll be up on the screen. John 14, 1 to 7. John 14, 1 to 7. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jerry Thomas got engaged this week to live. Yeah, come on. So good. Just had to say that. Jesus makes three outlandish claims about who he is and about what it means. And here's the first one. We are lost and we cannot find our way. We are lost and we cannot find our way. Jesus says, I am the way. Now, let's be honest, that's a pretty bold claim for any person to make. I don't know if you've been to a party recently and said to your buddy, hey, buddy, how you doing? Pretty good, because I am the way, right? I mean, you would have to be a WWE wrestler or an A-lister to get away with a statement with as much self-confidence as that. But yet, that is who Jesus says he is. The conversation in the passage is actually the disciples saying to Jesus, hey, like we're scared. What's going on? You say that you're going to go somewhere. Like how can we find out where you're going? And Jesus says, even though you feel lost, I am the way. Specifically, I am the way to God. And I think it's really interesting that in human nature, deep down, we all have that sense of yearning to find our way to find our way home. It leads to that perpetual sense of unease that there is just somewhere we're supposed to be that is not quite where we are today. And our lives are all focused around how can we get to that place? And if you've ever felt like lost and needing to get somewhere, I remember being a kid going shopping with my mom and I think I was probably only like five years old. I remember being in this, what seemed like this insurmountably large town center and, and my mom, I think she was heading for the bank and I probably got very distracted because I turned around one moment and she was gone. You know, just sheer moment of panic where you're like, I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. I am on my own. It's exactly like I felt when I moved to LA and tried to drive on the freeways for the first few weeks. Like, where does this highway entrance go? What's this off-ramp? Right. We have that sense that we are just not where we're supposed to be, and it pushes us forward. We're rarely at rest. We have this yearning urgency, this attempt to be somewhere, to find someone, to find something, to get someplace. And how do we do it? We climb up the ladders. We think, if only I can climb this career ladder high enough, or this property ladder high enough, or this relational ladder, or this success ladder, if only I can just get high enough, that is where I need to be, right? And so we start climbing, and we start climbing, and then two things happen. The first one is that we realize we can't climb any higher, and we get angry and disillusioned. The other thing that can happen is that we do climb all the way to the top of the ladder, only to find, as Jim Carrey says, that it's just not where we were supposed to be anyway. Jim Carrey says, I wish everybody could get rich and famous and get everything that they wanted so that they'd realize it's not the way. Right? We, we climb, we look, we try everything we can, but it doesn't seem to work. And maybe it doesn't work because even though we can't explain it to ourselves, really what we're looking for is we're looking for God. We're looking for who we were made to be and by whom we were made. <clears throat> 
But John Steinberg, he articulates the problem so beautifully in this new book called East of Eden. He says this, the human race has been barred access to the dwelling and the temple of God and has made its way without his direct presence. And the human condition is struggling to find life on earth. East of Eden, all of us live our lives east of Eden. And here's his basic premise is that, is that in the beginning, when God created humans, we had three right relationships. We had a right relationship with our father who created us in heaven. We had a right relationship between human beings and we had a right relationship with the earth that we inhabit. But when the coming of the fall and sin and brokenness into the world, that those three relationships are broken and now we live outside of Eden. We are not at home. We are yearning and longing to get back to where we were incredibly created to be. Jesus says, interestingly, about sin, that people who live in sin are, are lost. Now, that's a really interesting articulation of, of sin. I think when we talk about sin, we talk about like, you know, you said a bad word or you did a bad thing. Jesus said, actually, sin is about being lost. And religion, religion is an attempt to try and close the gap and find our way home, right? We think, well, if only I work hard enough, then I get that inner peace back and then maybe God will like me one day. But in fact, that's not what Jesus says at all. Jesus doesn't say you can close the gap, just I've got a way, try really hard, follow a bunch of rules, try heal yourself, and if you do it well enough, yeah, maybe I'll let you in to my, to my kingdom. No, that's not what Jesus says at all. He says, I am the way to God. I mean, it's a bit like this. Picture, picture yourself out in fire season, out in one of the mountains around here. And imagine there's a massive raging wildfire and you're trapped in the valley in the middle and there's no way out because it's just smoky and hot and you don't even know which way you could go anyway. And you're standing there no, with no idea what to do when like a bulldozer comes up the valley and clears a single narrow pathway safely right to where you are so that you can walk off the mountain and get home. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. And, and incredibly, he doesn't say, well, I'm just one of a number of ways. He doesn't say, oh, and you could take this pathway. Uh, or don't worry, because you know, Allah's going to tunnel under that mountain, or Buddha's going to float over that mountain, or New Ageism is going to transcend you off the side of the mountain in some way. Like, he doesn't give these other options. In fact, he specifically, specifically, categorically says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except me. What an incredibly challenging thing for Jesus to say of himself. He says in Luke 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You see, while religion is all about man or women searching for God, Christianity is about God coming to search for us. See, being a Christian is both simultaneously recognizing, like I am not where I'm supposed to be right now, but also that God has come to find me and make a way home. Jesus came to bring us back to where we were always meant to be. He is the way. Here's the second thing Jesus says. Jesus says, we've been lied to and we need truth. We've been lied to and we need truth. He says this, I am the truth. I am the truth. Let's be honest, also pretty bold thing in a party setting to say, I am the truth. But that is exactly what his claim goes to. Christians don't claim that Jesus is some moral teacher or a good man or a political revolutionary or, or a prophet. 
They say, because Jesus says, that he is God in the flesh, the second member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, looking us in the eyes, speaking the very words of God to us about what is real and true. It's really interesting, if you look back in history, that that whenever people engage with God's words through Jesus, whenever they read scripture, amazingly, their lives are changed, transformed. I actually went this week and I, and I bought a bunch of John's Gospels, um, which is, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's just the little parts, what we're looking at today. It's one of the four accounts of Jesus's life. And I bought some and put them in the lobby because I want to give you one as a gift if you don't have a Bible. Because whilst people say to me all the time, like, well, Ben, why should I believe in Jesus? Like, why should I believe in Christianity? My answer is always like, well, don't believe me. Don't believe it because I told you. But maybe go read the words of Jesus and see what he had to say. And when people do that, their lives are transformed. Why? Because it's true. Because it is truth. And we need truth. I wonder if at this point in history, we need truth more than we've ever needed it before. Because all the time, like we're being manipulated. All the time we're being lied to. I'm not like conspiracy theorizing on you. But, but that is just kind of how it works, Right? I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy called Edward Bernays. Anyone ever heard of him? Right. He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. He arrived in the US in the 1940s. And he spent time learning all of Freud's techniques on how you can manipulate a person, how you can cause certain outcomes to occur and people to do certain things. And after he'd learned them, he let them loose on the American public in the most spectacular ways through government, through commerce, through what we now know as like commercials and advertising. He went crazy with it and was incredibly successful. If you realize what he was actually about, it is the most scary thing you've ever seen. Now, that was the 40s and the 50s. Since then, we've had huge expansion of media, social media, like fake news, real news, other types of news, balloons that fly over our head that may or may not contain secret messages and do things to us. I mean, who knows what's going on this week, right? We've got all this stuff. And if we're not careful, it can leave us in a place where we think, well, is truth even real anymore? Like, who can we trust? And if we go down that route, that also leads us even further to a place where we go, well, maybe truth is just personal. And then we say things like this, live your own truth, man. Right? Live your own truth, girl. You've got truth. I've got truth. We all have our own truth. The problem is, though, <laughs> it doesn't really hold together for very long. I mean, we try it with lots of different things. We try it with God, uh, you know, that same um, 52%. Uh, well, actually, more than 50%, 7 out of 10 young people in America say that all religions lead to God. They're basically equally valid and all the same things to say. The problem is, if you go down that line, though, it's just not true. It's just not true. It's actually quite insulting to people of different religions, I think, to say that of them. I remember when I was at seminary having a morning at a, a mosque in North London. And I was, to be honest, a little bit scared going in as a, as a white dude into this mosque. But we were, with my friends, we were welcomed so warmly. And this imam who runs the mosque spent a whole morning just showing us around, telling us about things. And we had this great conversation. And part of the great conversation we had was this moment when we were able to say to each other, isn't it amazing that we do agree on quite a lot of things over here? But actually, we fundamentally disagree about all of these things. 
And it wasn't an angry moment. It wasn't a critical moment. It was just an affirming moment to say that we don't believe the same things, and that's okay. In the same way that a few weeks later, I, I got to go and hang out um, at a Buddhist temple in, in London. And if you've ever been to a Buddhist temple, it will blow your grid for what you think God might be or who he might be or how you might interact with him and where you might go. It's like it's not even close to anything that you think Christianity might tell you. It's not the same. And it's okay that it's, it's not the same, but it's actually just deeply insulting to say that all religions are the same, right? I mean, if I think a Buddhist monk or the imam in the, north, in the mosque would be absolutely within their right to say, well, who do you think you are? Trying to colonize, ideologically colonize our thinking with your white liberal Western thought. Like, what are you doing? That's just cowardly. It's arrogant. Now, don't get me wrong, right? Every human being has absolute right to preference, to opinions. It's what makes us interesting. It means we don't all look the same. We don't sound the same. We don't like the same food. We don't dress the same. We are different. That's okay. But we cannot moralize our preferences into absolute truth. If you moralize your preferences into absolute truth, you will live in an existential puddle because it's just chaos. It's like delusional if you try and do that. In the same way that we can't then say, well, maybe just truth is no longer a thing. Truth doesn't exist, man. Let's just all do our own kind of thing. The problem is to say that truth doesn't exist is, in the, is a statement in itself which must be true, and you're back in your puddle pretty quickly on the floor, right? <laughs> truth does exist. We kind of know that truth exists. It's just that often what we really want to do is we want to say that truth is personal, and I can apply my truth to you, but I just don't have to live by the same rules. Right, I am um, in 2020. Do you remember when the fires came? If you're in LA, the forest fires suddenly came over the side of the mountain, and I was um, was teaching like an alpha prep evening, and I was driving back home, and my my home at that point was right under the mountain, and I started driving towards my house. I realized there was a line of fire, literally coming down the side of the mountain towards where I live. And I got home and Laura had like the car packed and the kids were all getting bundled up because we were on evacuation warning. Imagine if I'd in that moment said to her, don't worry, honey, the fire might be your reality. It's not mine, right? <laughs> might be your truth. It may even be what the government are telling you. It might be what the news channels are telling you, but it's just not true. So I'm going to bed, right? No way. It was a thing. Truth is actually true. We know that truth is really true. You know, if truth doesn't exist, then why would we bother to do anything good or reform anything? You know, Martin Luther King turned up and said, I have a dream. We could say, well, sure, man. Great. So do I. Who gets to choose what's going to be real in the future around here? Right? We need truth. Jesus says you can have your preferences, but you can't define truth. You have to align with what is truth or you don't. Because without truth, you just get power dynamics. You get culture wars, you get the isms, you get weaponizing opinions, you get cancel culture, you get categorization. Like, we need truth. We're desperate for truth. We spend millions of dollars, like, getting educations to hold on to, to figure out what is true. Because truth matters. I, um, I was actually born on a little tiny island, which is five miles off the south coast of England. Um, it's called the Isle of Wight, and you will never, ever go there, I'm sure. Um, the reason you'll never go there is because there's only three types of people who ever go there. One is holidaymakers who can't afford to go anywhere warm. Uh, the second are, are people who have retired, and the third type are sheep. 
Um, like literally no one else. Um, and the only way to get on and off the island is by ferry. Uh, and you can take the one hour very slow car ferry, but the more interesting way when I was a kid was to take these hydrofoils. Um, and they're like, if you've ever seen a hydrofoil, it's like a fast ferry that skims over the top of the water. It's absolutely brilliant in smooth, calm weather. Um, which never, ever happens uh, in the Solent between where I used to live. It's always rough. It's always windy. It's always blowing. And so these hydrofoils would like bounce and lurch all over the place. And you could always spot two types of people on the hydrofoils. Right? The, the first type of people were, were, were the holiday makers. And, and you could spot them not because of what they were wearing or because they had their bags, but because when they got off the ferry, they looked awful, like just terrible. Like they'd be green, they'd be clutching their vomit bag, they'd be like lurching for the nearest railing just to find something steady. But then you see this other group of people and they were the locals and they always just got off the ferry, grabbed their bags and off they went. And I used to think like, why, how is this possible? Like how can these two groups of people experience the same thing but totally differently? Is it in the DNA or was this what it means to have your sea legs or something? I, I didn't know until someone said, no, it's like this. You see, what all the locals know is that halfway across this five-mile crossing is a big spit of land, a big promontory of land that comes out, and it's got a massive tower on it with a light on top. It's an old power station. And all the locals know that if you look out the window and you fix your eyes on this point, which does not move and doesn't change, even though the boat is rocking up and down, even though it might be raining, even though it might be dark or light, even though the boat's moving... If you fix your eyes on it, then actually everything will be okay because you know where you are, you know which way you're going, and all of that liquid and stuff in your ears and your, just starts to kind of make sense and everything settles down. In, a, in the complete opposite way that what all the tourists did was get on the boat, start talking to each other inside the ship or now being on their devices or like reading. And so they're living in this one reality, which is totally opposed to the reality that's going on outside them. And that's why they feel sick. Jesus says that's exactly what truth is like. We need firm foundation, something which is not subjective that we can hold on to. When we think, well, then who do we listen to? Jesus says, listen to me. Listen to me. Build your life around me. And I think that's a massive challenge, isn't it? It's a massive challenge. I was doing a little doodling this week, so forgive me for my terrible PowerPoint skills that I'm about to unleash on you, but there you go. You're, you're now wondering, like, how can we hire him for his graphic design skills? <laughs> Not. But this is what Jesus says. God is real. Truth is real. I am the truth. And so we have this reality of an unchangeable, eternal being called God. And our reflection on that unchangeable reality is what we call theology. It's what we're doing this morning. It's where we read the words of Jesus. It's where we invite the Holy Spirit in, where we ask him to reveal who he is in the world. Now, out of that place, we then have a perception. We have a reality by which we can live. It informs our choices, the way that we shop, the way that we use money, the way that we build relationships, the way that we vote, all these different things are supposed to outflow from what we believe to be true about who God is. And then that is how we interact in the world. Are you with me? The problem is, is that usually what we do is the other way up, right? This is what we do subjectively. Is instead what we do is we say, well, the world is like this. 
right? Popular opinion, culture is like this. Peer pressure is like this. I want to be like this. And so that's what we make our choices based on. That's how we choose to build relationships or we think about certain moral issues, right? We just build it on what the world says. And then that informs who we think God might be or might not be or what he might be like or what he might not be like. The problem is it's not true. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the truth. Listen to me. And it's really, really challenging to us because some of the things that Jesus says are actually quite deeply uncomfortable to us. I mean, it would be really nice if Jesus went, well, Ben, it's amazing. I agree with you on everything you've ever thought. It's incredible how smart you are, really, right? That's not what Jesus does. Jesus says some really challenging things. He tells us the truth about good and evil. I mean, I think in, in our kind of like more postmodern way, we want to say something like, well, evil is just out there. Like, you know, I, I'm struggling, but they are evil. Judge them, have mercy on me. I'm the hero or I'm the victim, but, but that evil is just somewhere else than me. So there's like a thousand different ways you can narrate that story. But it's not true. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a, a dissident in Russia, communist Russia, and he said this. He said, gradually, glad, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart, and the line is in you. Now that is challenging. But what he, he's basically doing is agreeing with Jesus when Jesus says, hey, here's the thing, you human beings are capable of staggering beauty, staggering brilliance, staggering creativity, but you're also capable of staggering evil at the same time. Every single person. I mean, I, I think we saw it a little bit in the pandemic, and I'm not pointing my fingers at, at anyone else, but it's kind of really interesting that when the pandemic hit, we had like these acts of incredible sacrificial love, and then we had toilet roll hold, hoarding. Like, what, what was that about? Where did, where did that come? Well, you can't have the toilet roll because I need the toilet roll, otherwise I might die, right? What is this? But evil is, is, is actually in every single one of us in some way. We all have both good and evil that we contend with. We have it in churches. You know, I can't tell you how many people come to Vintage and say, like, I grew up in this church, something happened, I was deeply hurt. Like I said, I'd never go back to a church ever again. I can't believe I'm here. I just want to tell you I'm here. And I say, well, thank you for being brave enough just to be here. Right? Because, because evil is not ever just out there. It's also something we all contend with. And it would be really kind of helpful if Jesus was just kind of like a nice, cuddly Jesus who just said, there, there, you know, it's okay, everything's going to be fine. But some of Jesus' goodness is that he tells us the truth about the world. He tells us actually about a God who is very angry about evil. In fact, that, that Jesus, that God has to be angry about evil because if he wasn't angry about what is wrong, then he'd just be like apathetic and unjust. But the really hard thing for us to hear is that the problem is that we might be part of the evil sometimes that exists, which means that some of the anger of God might even occasionally be directed at us, and we desperately don't like that. But Tom Wright says this, the wrath of God is simply the shadow side of the love of God for his wonderful creation and his amazing human creatures. Like a great artist, appalled at the way his paintings have been defaced by the very people who were supposed to be looking after them. 
God's implacable rejection of evil is the natural outflowing of his creative love. God's anger against evil is itself the determination to put things right, to get rid of the corrupt attitudes and behaviors that have spoiled his world and his human creatures. It's because God loves the glorious world he has made and is utterly determined to put everything right that he's utterly opposed to everything that spoils or destroys that creation especially the human creatures who were supposed to be the linchpins of his plan for how the creation would flourish. Now, I know we go like, oh, I do not want a God of anger. Like, I do not want a God of wrath. But if you look at it in that way that N.T. Wright says, like, wrath is just the other side of his love. It's the root of justice. It's not the outburst of an angry, short-tempered dad. No, it's a proper, settled disposition to put what is right, put right what is wrong in the world. Even if, like, I might be part of the problem sometimes. But before you all walk out, you need to know what it is that Jesus did because of the problem. Is that he didn't just rage at sin and condemn us and judge us. No, he wept for the loss and came to fix it. Came to die on the cross so that forgiveness and righteousness and things could be found again and our relationship with God could be made right. Like, it's a beautiful thing when you get that glimpse of Jesus' love. As Dorothy Sayers says, for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he might be playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, but thought it well worthwhile. This is Jesus. Like, who is somebody who would have the truth to tell us what is real and true about good and evil and then still think it's worth loving us to the point of death to take us on to redemption and healing? John Tyson says, like, the summary of, is basically of truth is this. We are all much worse than we ever thought we could be, but yet we are infinitely more loved, infinitely more accepted, infinitely more forgiving that we can't fix ourselves, that we can't save ourselves, but Jesus says truth, real truth, will set you free. Because it is the foundation that we need to build the rest of our lives around. We've been lied to, but we need truth. And then the third one. We are dying and we need life. Jesus says, I am the life. In John 11, when Jesus is talking to a woman, he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Now, let's be honest. Great moral teachers don't talk like that. They don't talk like that. What Jesus is doing is making a huge claim about sin and death, that he is the very one who comes to defeat death, to heal us. Now, I, I, don't know if, um, I don't know if you think about death that much. I don't know if you think about you know, where you're going to go when you die. I'm 40 years old, so I figure on my, my timeline, I probably am only roughly about halfway through the journey so far. So I, I don't really think too much about where I'm going to go when I die. But I remember um, 
remember a few years ago going to northern France and the French-Belgian border, where the battlegrounds of World War I were. And if you go there, there are tens and tens of thousands of graves just lined up throughout the countryside of young men who died tragically in the First World War trenches. And, and often when people go there, they find it like a really deeply hard and depressing place to go to. And it is tragic to think about the loss. But actually, I went there and I really felt like I met with the Lord, strangely. And, I, and I've, this was the thought process I went, I went through. Like, well, Lord, I hope that I don't die in this particular way. But the truth is, in 100 years' time, this is going to be me. This will be me. I will be in a grave somewhere in the world with my name on it. In 200 years' time, I'll be a memory in maybe some family members. In 500 years' time, I might be a citation on some AI version of a website or something. I don't know what will exist then. But that's kind of it. Except, of course, it's not it. Because if that is it, then that is a deeply depressing and just shallow feeling where you think, well, I might as well just go out and party because it's going to be over soon. But Jesus says that's not it. Jesus says, I am part of an eternal story of life. Jesus says that even though one day I, my body will die, my body will wear away and I will find myself buried, that that isn't the end of the story. You see, one day we will all have to take a stone cold look at death and evil in the eye. We will. It's going to happen. It's just an inevitability of when. But what I do know is that we do need an idea of what's going to happen beyond some sort of late, modern, shallow pleasure story where this is all we've got. Otherwise, it is just a very, very sad existence. As Angelo de Banco says, hope is the way we overcome the lurking suspicion that all of our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while waiting for death. Oh my goodness. Amazon.com, fidgeting while waiting for death. Right, Instacart, fidgeting while waiting for death. Getting a pay rise, going on a date, weekend away, sitting on the beach, fidgeting while waiting for death. Now I'm dead. Right? It's, it's a pretty horrible thought if you, if you think like that. But is it, isn't that how so often the world tells us it really works? Is there more? Like, is there more? Jesus says, yes. There is so much more than that. There is so much more than that. Jesus says that there is life in eternity, that you will be resurrected, that you will have a new existence, that you will live without pain and suffering in his presence forever. But he also says you can live now. The eternal life is not pie in the sky when you die. It's now too. The resurrected life Jesus speaks of is right now. And even if we think, well, we've screwed it up too bad. God could never love us. Jesus himself says, the thief that comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they, all of them, may have life and life to the full. That is what Jesus says about life. I, I think so many people think that Christians hate their lives and are just miserable keeping rules whilst judging everyone else. And the best thing you can therefore do is to give up all of that kind of wishful thinking and instead just be free to follow your heart's desires and your emotions anywhere they take you. But Jesus says, actually, life is beyond that. Life is actually being free not to have to be blown around by every emotional feeling that you have and be swept around in the culture and the waves and the storms, but actually to be free to become the very person you were created to be, 
to be a person of love, of truth, and of life. You know, um, my, I have a lot of family members around the world, and lots of them are not Christians yet. Um, you'll be amazed to know that they haven't all fallen at my feet and sort of repented of their sins in my presence. Um, <laughs> but I think some of them honestly think that Laura and I are completely crazy. Like I, I, they, haven't, they haven't been bold enough to say it to our faces, but I, I genuinely pick up things sometime where they, they're sort of talking like, well, you used to have like a great business career and you lived in a great place and like, why would you like give up all of that to go and live on the other side of the world and try and start a church? Like, why would you do that? Now, because they've not been brave enough to actually ask me, I've not been brave enough to actually answer either yet, but <laughs> I have got my answer ready. And this is my answer. There is not an amount of money, there's not a dollarage, there's not a place, there's not a person, there's not a material situation, there's not a job, there's literally nothing that you could offer me anywhere that would come even close to tempting me to give up what I found in Jesus. I, it's just not, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor, I just genuinely believe that. Like when I became a Christian, like as a young person, like I found that not just about going to heaven one day, I found out how you could be alive. I found that my sins could be forgiven. I found that I could know the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit working in my life every day. I found out that he had a plan for my life that I could be part of and follow into, into life and into eternity. Like you can't trade me that. I'm not taking it. I don't want it. Because I have found life. And that's what we're about. That's why I do what I do. I'm sure it's why we are here as a church. We exist to make Jesus known in the world. We are a massive signpost to who Jesus is. The way, the truth, and the life. And let's just be honest. It is a bold, blunt, clear statement from Jesus. We cannot reduce it down to just Jesus is a nice guy. As C.S. Lewis says, if someone says the things Jesus says, there's only three possibilities. One is he's completely deluded and making it up. In which case, run as far as you can away from Christianity in the church. It's dangerous. Number two, Jesus is lying to you. He's a con man. In which case, run as far as you can away from the church because it's not going to help you. Or number three, and only one other option, he's telling the truth. He's telling the truth. And if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the way, if he is the truth, and if he is the life, then the only response we can really give is to get on our knees before him and love him and welcome him and worship him. I don't think there's anything else. And so I just want to take a moment to respond before we come to communion. Our kids and our youth are going to come back in, which is wonderful. But I want to take a moment for us to pray together. And um, maybe you're coming into church this morning and maybe this is like the first time you've ever heard any of this kind of stuff. And you're like, wow, I just, I've never heard that before. Maybe you have heard all that before, but it's been like a theoretical kind of like philosophical debate in your mind. Maybe it's something that was true for you once, but it's not true anymore. Well, I want to take a moment just to pray for us to recognize the invitation that Jesus has, which is to come to him. Come to him. And so let's pray together.
Father, we love you. And I just want to pray this morning for, for any, any person here who maybe has just never taken that moment to accept and welcome Jesus into their lives. Lord, maybe there's just a few of us for whom this is just a complicated, difficult discussion, but deep down we know that your invitation is for us to come home, to come into relationship with you, to find forgiveness, to find healing, to find truth. And I thank you, Lord, that that it's such a, a gift that you give us, a free gift that we can but receive. Thank you, Lord. And so I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer. And if you want to, you might be for the first time, it might be for like a thousandth time, I don't know. You can pray this simple prayer in your hearts where you are. And it just goes like this. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Thank you, Jesus, that you would love me so much that you would come to deal with the problems of evil and brokenness that exist in the world and exist in me. Thank you that you offer life and life in all of its fullness. Please, would you come into my life so that I might know that life today? In your name. Amen. Amen.